You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, EU leaders meet Ukraine's accession to the bloc on the agenda. I'm Ed Stoker and I'm Monocle's Europe editor-at-large here in Milan. And today I'm going to be talking about the EU summit that starts today and the fact that Viktor Orban of Hungary is proving a headache over the accession talks for Ukraine. We'll explore whether freeing 10 billion euros in blocked funding will help to persuade the tricky Hungarian leader. Also ahead, Vladimir Putin combines his annual end-of-year press conference with his televised call-in. But what will be this year's questions for Russia's self-styled problem-solver-in-chief? We'll hear about a rather messy election campaign in Serbia and the CEO of the Langham Hospitality Group will tell us about their plans for expansion in 2024. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. A look at what else is happening in today's news. The US House of Representatives has voted to formalise an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Israel's foreign minister has said it will continue the war in Gaza with or without international support. And Britain, Japan and Italy have signed an international treaty to develop an advanced fighter jet. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Ukraine's path to membership of the European Union has enjoyed a quicker pace than others, chiefly due to the bloc's desire to lend a protective arm to a neighbour under attack. Today, at a summit of EU leaders in Brussels, Kyiv hopes it'll be given the green light for accession talks. But standing in the way is Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban. For weeks now, the Hungarian Prime Minister has threatened to veto the bloc's plan to allocate 50 billion euros to Kyiv, as well as a decision to start EU membership talks with them. He'll only capitulate if the EU frees 10 billion euros of funding for them, blocked because of concerns about Mr Orban's abuse of the rule of law in Hungary. Well, I'm joined now by Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor-at-large. A very good morning to you, Ed. Good morning, Emma. So does Orban, uh, neatly put, have the European Union by what would be described as the short and curlies here? Well, yes and no. I think I think uh, the media likes a bogeyman uh, and Viktor Orban uh, neat, neatly fits that bill. Uh, he does uh, refuse to play ball and he's been very vocal, look, um, in, in the last few weeks uh, about his stance. Uh, to, to say the very least, he is cynical uh, about the things that are being proposed at this two day summit today. Uh, you mentioned it before. Uh, this is would be really to examine in more detail, even though it is a very long process, a fast track accession uh, to the EU uh, of Ukraine. And then there are other matters uh, involving money, which uh, which are uh, a financial support between now and 2027 of some a little bit over, in fact, 50 billion uh, euros and also continued military support, uh, which is through uh, the European peace facility, slightly different to the European budget. And that would be uh, around 20 billion 
euros. Now, Orban uh, says that, uh, for example, he says that seven of the conditions that were sort of needed uh, for Ukraine's uh, uh, accession to proceed ha- have not been met. That includes the protection of minorities. There is a small Hungarian minority uh, in Ukraine. The EU, on the other hand, says six of the seven uh, uh, of these uh, ha- conditions have been met. So there's been a war of words. Uh, Hungary also cynical uh, of some of this money, uh, perhaps a reflection that public opinion has been shifting uh, away slightly in Hungary from support of Ukraine. It's going to be a busy day, a busy couple of days. You mentioned that 10 uh, billion uh, euros. That has actually been unblocked by uh, the European Union now uh, after some changes uh, regarding the independence of justice uh, from within Hungary. Some are seeing that as a sort of sweetener Ahead of these two days talks, uh, you know, this release of funds perhaps may change all bands mind. There is still uh, over 20 billion to be unblocked. But the thought possibly uh, that this money could help. We have seen Orban in the past be very vocal about things. For example, uh, he was decidedly lukewarm about Russian sanctions, but he did end up um, supporting a, a whole uh, range of different um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, against Russia. Um, so he has often spoken out publicly and then done, done, you know, in order to get support at home, I guess, and then done different things when it comes down to it. I'd say at the moment, it's almost like anything could happen. It's going to be an intense couple of days for the European Union. This has given the European Union another Victor Orban-related headache, hasn't it? Because mm. the European Commission's decision last night to unblock 10 billion euros of this, a third of this help, this fund that's been held back to soften the Hungarian leader's position. That hasn't gone down well in certain diplomatic areas. I'm saying we don't pay a price for political decisions. And there's a reason why this money has been held back. There's a reason why Hungary isn't getting these funds. It's because the European Union believes that Viktor Orban cannot meet the milestones on the rule of law. Well, the European Union is extremely, uh, you know, wants to point out very clearly that this is not, you know, this is not a blackmail money of any sort. It argues that there have been significant changes in the last day or two that have led to this release uh, of, of funding. Um, you know, there's an argument also, you know, in the past, you know, Orban has sort of uh, taken positions in order uh, to, to as a negotiating tool, if you like. The fact that this money has been released, you can call it, you can kind of read it two ways. One is that uh, this could be a sweetener. This could make him more likely to concede. At the very least, he may abstain to allow these things to pass. On the other hand, you could say, well, actually, uh, he's in quite a strong position because he's had this money released. So he doesn't really need to, uh, I guess, uh, negotiate in order to get more money released. Of course, there is still, as you mentioned, Emma, uh, 21 billion that is still frozen. So you could argue that he may want to, uh, you know, take a line dependent on that. But he's actually in quite a strong position. And so it will be interesting, as I say, to say what happens. I mean, it, 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 he's not the only country that is perhaps uh, cynical of some of these things. Uh, Slovakia, for example, has uh, recently elected, of course, Robert Fico, former prime minister who's returned there. He, he's 
apparently got Russian sympathies, although he has said uh, that he would support um, accession talks uh, of Ukraine. Poland as well has been wary of competition from Ukraine. Don't forget that truck drivers have been blockading the border over the fact that the Ukrainian truckers are allowed permit-free access to the EU. So there are other countries as well that uh, perhaps have issue with this, you know, the fact that some see it as not a level level playing field, the fact that the Ukraine is being fast-tracked. Some countries, for example, Austria, would like to see uh, uh, the accession of of Bosnia as well uh, linked to that of Ukraine. Uh, at, At the same time, Ukraine is really hoping that these two days go well because, you know, the country hasn't had a particularly good week. It needs to convince the European Union just after Zelensky, of course, after visiting Argentina, was in the US trying to convince Republicans to release uh, an emergency fund of 61 billion US dollars. He wasn't successful there. If he doesn't come away with what he wants, what he needs uh, after this two day conference, it, it, it will seem like a bit of a turning point in support for Ukraine and obviously mean a difficult future for the country. Ed Stocker, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Milan. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monaco Radio. in Berlin, 7.12 here in London. Now Russia has plenty of problems. Labour issues, high inflation, high interest rates and there's also an acute shortage of eggs. There is also the unavoidable issue of the country's invasion of Ukraine approaching its third year and an estimated 315,000 Russians either killed or wounded. But whether any of these troubles, including the egg shortage, will feature in Vladimir Putin's annual phone-in is a different matter. The Russian president likes to see himself as a problem-solver-in-chief and the televised call-in allows ordinary citizens to ask the Russian leader to solve their daily problems. Or for the first time, it'll be held at the same time as President Putin's annual press conference. And to tell us more about today's events, I'm joined by Stephen Diel, Russia analyst and regular voice around the microphone here at Monocle. Stephen, a very warm welcome back to Monocle Radio. Thank you, uh, Emma. Good morning. So this is the first call in and press conference sort of brought together, isn't it? Yes, first time. So it's a it's a first in so much as, uh, as you say, these these normally have been two big public events with one just for journalists as a press conference, the other for the public. So they're amalgamating it together. That's it's a first for that. It's also the first since the uh, the start of the war last year. It, it didn't happen last year, which I think says a lot about um, Putin's confidence at the moment and lack of confidence a year ago. Of course, after the war started, when he'd expected to uh, seize key of the Ukrainian capital within three days, uh, and then things started to go horribly wrong because, surprise, surprise, the Ukrainians fought back and pushed the Russian forces back. Um, this time last year, he was still have been feeling rather bruised by that and wouldn't have wanted to face the public or a massive press conference. Um, now things are going rather differently. There's still quite a stalemate on the on the um, the border of the war in the east of Ukraine. Kiev was bombarded the night before last by a very severe missile attack. Odessa, the night we've just had, has been attacked by drones. Um, Russia is feeling a bit more confident in the war. Putin is feeling more confident, and that's why he's prepared to, uh, up to an extent, should we say, face the public. India, I mean, facing the public is, is quite a loose term, isn't it? Because the, the press conference involves questions being asked by those who are sympathetic towards Vladimir Putin. And the phone in itself, I mean, uh, will there be 
individuals ringing up with with sort of serious genuine problems or, or one assumes that there'll be a very very strict vetting process <laughs> I have no doubt at all that there'll be a very strict vetting process. Um, no one is going to be able to pick up the phone and, for example, say, where's Alexei Navalny? Because, of course, one of the most important stories, I think, in Russia at the moment is the whereabouts of the uh, leader, effectively the leader of the opposition, Alexei Navalny, who, of course, is is in prison, is due to be in prison for the next 30 years. Um and has disappeared for the last eight days. There is talk he's perhaps being moved to a, a strict regime prison uh, because he's um, branded an extremist. Um, but uh, his his lawyers, his 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 um, his team who are still working on on his project, um, no one's been able to get hold of him. No one knows exactly where he is. But I don't think you're going to get anyone ringing and saying where is he. I think though. Uh, to pick up something you mentioned in the lead-in, um, I think you might get someone, people, someone asking, "Well, Mr. President, what about eggs?" Um, because, as you say, the um, eggs, the price of eggs has shot up, um, and these are the sort of things that not only worry Russians because it's day-to-day -day life and it's, it's inflation, and inflation is uh, last month running at 7.5 percent and is 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 not coming down much, um, but they're the sort of things that worry Russians. But also, these are the kind of things that worry Putin, because Putin being a KGB man, the KGB are, are totally paranoid about anything, any kind of protest, any complaint in society could spark off a, a larger revolt and even a revolution. It sounds absurd, but that's that's their thinking. Um, and so he, they may well allow someone to ask about eggs so that Putin can uh, can calm the, the, the nerves of the population and say, you know, this is a temporary uh, problem um, and maybe get a quote from somewhere else in the world where there's been a problem with eggs or, or, or inflation or whatever. So that one might be allowed, but no serious questions will come in. So do we learn anything either? If, do the Russian people get any nuggets of wisdom and indeed the international community? I think the international community will be looking to see how Putin performs um, uh, because another issue that I'm sure will be avoided will be any questions about Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the, uh, who, of course, led that revolt back in June and two months later died mysteriously in, in, in a, a helicopter crash. Um, I, I bring up Prigozhin because that's, that's another thing that um, people might want to ask about but probably won't be. But also, the morning of that revolt on the 23rd of June this year, um, Putin gave a televised appearance and um, I, for one, and I don't think no many others, um, had never seen him looking so worried. Um, the way in which he spoke was was different. He was he he, see, he was, clearly was tense. Um, normally, he's very good at giving these appearances on television or before the public, and and being stony faced and very relaxed. Um, so I think that this time people will be looking. What's he going to look like? You know, is he going to be this um, calm, confident man who feels now that perhaps the war is turning in his favour? Um, he's he's being protected from the, the the awkward questions. So that 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 is something to look out for. Just what does he look like, and and how he he carries it off, and also how long it is. Because in past years, when he was much more confident, um, the either the press conference or the phone in would go on for up to four hours. Um, I'd be surprised if it goes on for quite as long as that this year. But if it does, it really really would be a sign of his current confidence. Indeed. And just explain a little bit more about what the effect the war is having on daily life in Russia. Um, in, in addition to the fact that you know, there are 
small opposition pockets demanding that questions are asked at this session, um, the relatives of those fighting on the front line against Ukraine wanting conditions to be improved. But in terms of what Russia is... Well, how Russia is at the moment, because you hear about them, the, the, the sanctions being circumvented, the oil restrictions being circumvented, the fact that Russia seems to be not doing as badly as the West had hoped. That's all true. And, and I, I, it, it strikes me that for the majority of Russians, and I think it's a shame, they, they don't notice what's going on. They don't care about the war. They don't even notice the war. I say it's a shame because, you know, this is a, this is a, um, this is a war. I mean, this is a major war on European territory. And yet most Russians now, and it's partly human nature, we, we get used to things and we get on with life, but that's what most Russians are doing. Um, there are a few uh, dissenting voices, many seriously dissenting voices, of course, have been slapped down and, and imprisoned or, or they've left the country. Um, but there are those who, mothers, for example, saying, you know, what's happening to my son? Why, why are they being so badly treated? And there may be a sop to the mothers, the mothers who Putin last week called to have many more babies, um, obviously to, to uh, replace those who are being killed on the front line. Um, but um, life goes on in Russia. Uh, and it's been, as, as you mentioned at the start, it's been, you know coming towards the third year of this war. So Russians have got used to not having the Western goods, perhaps, that they might have had. There was a, um, a, a wisecrack that went around early on saying Russians are used to having the, the latest iPhone. They now must realise they've got the last iPhone because, of course, they're not be able to, to, to upgrade. But that sort of thing has, has, has really passed people by now and they, they've, they've got used to living in a situation where, yeah, maybe they can't buy everything they're used to. Inflation's quite high, but it is in a lot of places. Um, and so it's not really rocking society um, in, uh, in Russia um, as, as we might have, might have thought. Um, and that's why I think Putin feels he can, he can keep this, the war going for a long time. And that's why he's confident enough to face the public today. Stephen Dale, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. Corporate, particularly regional travel, is very much back. And then the leisure end of the market, particularly out of the United States, is also back. Bob van den Oort, the CEO of the Langham Hospitality Group, talks to us about how the luxury hotel industry has bounced back post-COVID. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 7.22 here in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Waldy, Europe correspondent at The Globe and Mail. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. How's life in Paul's world? Fine, thank you. Fine. Good, delighted to hear it. <laughs> right, let's have a look at the papers. Um, I mentioned in the, the headlines at the top of the programme that Britain, Japan and Italy have now signed a treaty 
to approve the, the development of a new generation fighter jet, which is, you know, is going to be 100 times better than any other fighter jet that's ever flown the skies. Um, but this is, a, this is quite a significant moment, a, a, a development in, in, in a continuing story, isn't it? Well, it is, and it is for a lot of different reasons. First of all, it's really, I think, the first time Japan has stepped into this kind of a world and, and got involved in a project of this kind. Also, it's incredibly ambitious. These three countries are hoping to produce a supersonic fighter jet in half the time it normally takes. So they want to have this thing flying by 2035. They've set up Britain as the headquarters for this, but they're trying to distribute all of the work and jobs across all three countries. And they're hoping that some other countries might join in, notably Saudi Arabia, which would be fascinating if they took part in this project. That's still far from certain, but it's the kind of thing they're hoping for. So it's it's big, it's ambitious, it's expensive, of course. Britain's already invested about two billion pounds into this thing. Japan, I think, is going to kick in at least 500 million U.S. So uh, it's quite an effort. It's quite an effort. And, and it's interesting to see how Japan, Italy and the United Kingdom have come together. And it, which forces decided, what forces, not military forces, but external forces, brought these three nations together at this point? and decide, yes, we need to build a new fighter jet? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. One, obviously, is the war in Ukraine that obviously has a big impact uh, on the European side of this thing. But also for Japan, it's the, the growing perceived threat of China in that region and the whole effort by China maybe to exert a whole lot more influence. Uh, and I think Japan is trying to counterbalance that. Probably North Korea as well has some factor in all of this. So I think for Japan, there's a real sense that they need to step up their military program as well as the Europeans do. Uh, it's interesting that the UK will be the headquarters of this, but the the organisation of it all will rotate, won't it? Yeah, and, and I think while Britain will be the headquarters of this, I think a Japanese will be, someone from Japan will be the CEO of it initially. So they're really at pains here to distribute everything as equally as possible. But of course, it is largely based on how much each country contributes. And right now, Britain has been the big contributor, so it gets to be the headquarters. OK, uh, let's go to BP. In an article in the New York Times, uh, BP takes tough line with former CEO over relationships with colleagues. Uh, the oil giant said that Bernard Looney had knowingly misled the board about the relationships and was not entitled to $40 million. Right then, what's happened here? Well, I mean, this has been an ongoing saga. I mean, it's fascinating. Bernard Looney actually resigned back in September after a big investigation into some past relationships he'd had uh, at the company. And some of the women involved had actually been promoted. So there was lots of concerns around that. However, the reason they're, they're taking this pretty drastic action now is they are trying to send a signal that if you mislead the board, and that's what they're alleging Looney did. He wasn't uh, totally forthcoming about all the different relationships he'd had with colleagues. So the board is saying, look, if you do that, you're going to pay the consequence. And so they're withholding about £32 million worth of stock options. They're forcing him to pay back some money he's already received. So it's it's a pretty extensive press release and pretty pretty inflammatory language. Uh, no doubt Looney will be hiring lawyers uh, like crazy to try and fight this off. But it, it's, quite a, it's quite a signal from BP's board. And, you know, Looney is the third CEO out of the last four who's resigned under a cloud. So I think the company is trying to put all this behind them and show that they can actually keep a CEO in place who isn't going to end up in scandal. It's interesting you say that because when you, if you, if you work in certain circles that sort of explain how you should or should not be public facing in a crisis... The BP, Tony Hayward, I want my life back com comment is something that 
everybody learns from when it when in terms of how you should behave, how you should be responsible to your company and indeed to the people whose whose lives lives you affect. The fact that you've also mentioned that several BP um, CEOs have resigned. Do we know what's going wrong with BP? Well, there has been a lot of speculation that BP in the last couple of decades really developed this culture of superstars within the company that were people that were almost untouchable. And that's unlike a lot of other companies, certainly unlike a lot of other companies in the oil sector. We haven't seen this kind of turnover. And there was a sense that really there was just this group of people who couldn't be criticized, could never be held out for any kind of mis- misdoing or anything. So that culture, I think, is what they have to move away from. And it's the kind of culture that he came up from because he is a he had been a BP for 30 odd years so he's come up through the ranks and been a beneficiary of this culture and I think now BP's really got to take a hard look at the way it treats its people internally and the way it sort of judges and is more objective about uh, the people in senior ranks and indeed it, uh, well, we shall see what happens with BP there um, let's look at a story which um, well let's cast our minds back about 24 24- 48 hours now, with the uh, UN General Assembly passing a resolution non-binding calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Um, Three countries teamed together, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, Going against the United States in, in, in one sense, but also actively voting for this resolution was a, was a big step for the likes of Canada and Australia, wasn't it? It's a huge step for Canada, particularly given this government. The Liberal Party, which has a minority government in Canada, has long been the home of the Jewish community in Canada. They've been strong supporters of the Liberal Party. So for the government to take this kind of a position uh, is pretty extraordinary. And it was only a few years ago when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was saying that Canada would never allow Israel to be isolated in the UN. And that's exactly what Canada has done now by joining all of these other countries. Canada and Australia and New Zealand issued this statement to try and clarify why they did this. They talked more about Hamas and saying Hamas needs to release the hostages, whereas the UN resolution didn't mention Hamas at all. But that really hasn't done much to sort of um, dampen the controversy in Canada, and in particular within the Liberal Caucus, which now, of course, has a lot of Muslim MPs, MPs who represent largely Muslim constituencies in Canada. So the party has changed over the years, and I think this is a reflection of that reality. But it is very extraordinary. Lots of Jewish groups in Canada have condemned the government for doing this. Lots of liberal MPs have condemned the government for doing this. So it's it's a pretty extraordinary position that Trudeau's found himself in. And how much does this alter Canada's relationship with its neighbour? Well, I think it's also a big, big uh, send signal to to Biden, and, and you know the Biden administration did mention, and of course, obviously, a couple of, a day or so ago, that Israel is facing less international support, and I think Canada was one of the reasons that was mentioned. Uh, it is extraordinary. Canada usually lines up with the U.S. certainly when it comes to issues like Israel at the UN. So this is a pretty significant break. Uh, finally, a story that's breaking in the United Kingdom about. Um the pledge that the government made to make the UK smoke-free by 2030, to make sure that no one picks up a cigarette. <laughs> if, you do, if, you, if you want to do something like that, do you have a vape or something else? Um, but for the first time in a very long time, the, num- the, de- the, the pace of the decline in smoking has slowed. Not only has it slowed, there's a suggestion from this study, this is a big study from uh, UCL London, uh, saying that it's actually gone up amongst young people, 18 to 24-year-olds. And that's a 
That's a real concern because, of course, forever and ever, smoking rates had gone down. And I think there'd been this kind of complacency that maybe people had finally been convinced, and particularly young people had finally been convinced that smoking was bad. And, you know, they were turning to vaping. But the feeling now is that there's been so much concern raised about vaping that maybe young people are going back to smoking, which, which isn't a good thing because vaping is a whole lot more safer than smoking. However, one of the big factors here appears to be the pandemic, which obviously hit young, younger people much harder uh, than older people. And there's a sense that that stress and that loneliness and those, all those difficulties led them to pick up smoking. And it's a real concern that the prevalence of smoking is actually stalled, whereas it had been going down kind of very, very steadily since about the 1970s. And we also see the fact that in, in New Zealand, a plan to make New Zealand smoke-free has been scrapped by the new government, which doesn't set a good tone, does it? Right. I mean, and that was the model that Rishi Sunak was was following here in the UK, where he was moving or is moving to make Britain smoke-free by 2030. The, the plan here is that any 14-year-old now would never be able to smoke a cigarette. New Zealand was following a similar type of plan under the former government, even stricter measures. And the new government has revoked all of that and said, we're not going to do this. Part of the reason is the tax revenue that smoking generates for the government. But also, I think the sense was that this might not work, that this isn't effective. And Maybe we're seeing some of that from this study from the UCL today. Paul Waldy, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. A quick look now at the latest headlines. The US House of Representatives has voted to formalise an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Three Republican-led House committees have accused the Democratic president of improperly profiting while he was vice president to Barack Obama. Republicans have yet to find evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. Israel's foreign minister has said it will continue the war in Gaza with or without international support. Israel's facing mounting pressure over the number of Palestinian civilians killed in Gaza and a worsening humanitarian crisis. Britain, Japan and Italy have signed an international treaty to develop an advanced fighter jet. The supersonic stealth jet will feature a radar that can provide 10,000 times more data than current systems. The agreement comes a year after the three countries established their first major defence industry collaboration. And the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is reshuffling his cabinet as he battles to control damage from one of the biggest scandals his party has faced for decades. Four ministers from the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and several deputy ministers are set to be replaced. Prosecutors have launched a criminal investigation into parts of the LDP over the disappearance of 500 million yen from the party accounts. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Thirty-three in Paris, which is where we head next. With his second term in the Elysee, the French President Emmanuel Macron should be progressing at full throttle through his policies. But the failure of his party, La République en Marche, Latterly Renaissance, to win a majority in the country's parliament has left President Macron struggling to get his own way. This week, a flagship immigration bill was rejected by both the left and the right, and it's raising questions about what kind of leadership will actually get him through all this. Well, I'm joined now from Paris by Agnès Parier, who's a journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. Good morning, Agnès. Good morning. So let's just focus first on this immigration bill that was uh, rejected at the beginning of this week. This, what happened there? 
Well, I mean, let's talk about this bill, this uh, immigration bill. I'm not sure it's a flagship uh, bill, but it's it's certainly very technical and it aims at correcting uh, the current law. Basically, um, it aims to tighten the asylum system, for instance, to reduce the number of appeals applicants can make. Uh, for the moment, they can appeal 12 times. Uh, so the, the government wants to reduce that to, to two. Um, it requires more proficiency in French um, and improve France's pretty, you know, mediocre, certainly poor record of remo removals, especially to deport foreign nationals when they have committed a crime on French soil. But it also aims to give work permits, for instance, to uh, illegal uh, or undocumented, if you prefer, people who are uh, employed in sectors with labour um, shortages, um, for instance, in uh, healthcare or, or in uh, construction uh, works. So, um, as you um, must have realized from what I told you, there's a bit for uh, the right and there's a bit for the left, which is the sort of signature politics of uh, President Macron, you know, borrowing ideas from the right and from the left. Um, it's it's a, a sort of a, a policy and, and politics that we call in, in uh, French en même temps at the same time. But uh, it looks as if it hasn't really pleased uh, neither the right nor the, the left uh, and certainly not the extremes. So they have all banded together on Monday uh, to reject the bill before it was even discussed in um, at the National Assembly, that is to say the lower house. It had been however, passed um, in the Senate, but in a, in a version that is uh, slightly harsher because the Senate has a majority of um, right-wing uh, senators. So just explain to us a little bit about with this absolute polarisation of representatives within, within the, the, the Assemblée Nationale, how hard does this now make life for Emmanuel Macron. There is a suggestion that he's running out of road much faster than anybody expected, to the degree where one commentator has now called him already a lame duck president. Well, that's what the far right and the far left are saying. But uh, look, um, it was always going to be difficult to govern France without an absolute majority or, or just a, a majority. Uh, he, he still enjoys the biggest um, parliament, parliamentary group, uh, about um, you know 170 MPs plus 50 centrist allies. The problem um, in France is that what's left of the mainstream, uh, mainstream right and the mainstream left have really shrunk. And together, they only account for 80 MPs when the far right and the far left are have enormous power with about 160, uh, what am I saying? Yes, about 160 MPs together. And really what happened Monday, which was really not um, uh, expected, is probably a, a sort of a revenge and, and a thank you note for the pension reform. Remember, because the pension reform, uh, which um, was a 
proposed in Parliament, but also in the streets, um, was passed or, or, or by a presidential decree. I mean, it's a constitutional, it's purely constitutional, so it's not controversial, but Parliament was bypassed. And really, it wasn't, uh, um, it wasn't you know, accepted or, or it didn't go down well at all with the MPs or the French. So I think that's that that's what happened on, on Monday. So now um, there are a few options for President Macron. And he, he indeed, he called for a cross-party cross committee of senators and MPs to seek compromise. Uh, but of course, if they don't seek compromise, they don't uh, achieve compromise, well, the bill could be dropped. Uh, but then the responsibility of this would fall at the feet of um, the far right, the far left, and and more uh, the mainstream right and mainstream left, who want this bill. And and contrary to the pension reform, 85% of the French people want this law. So Macron has quite a lot of uh, cards up his sleeve still. Agnès Parier, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's 8.39 in Belgrade, 7.39am here in London. Now, Serbians go to the polls this weekend and things are already looking messy. There are warnings that the opposition party intends to call what's been described as chaos and may declare victory before the votes are all even counted. Well, Guy Deloni is Monocle's Balkans correspondent. He joins us on the line from Ljubljana. Very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Emma, and good morning all. So what's going on? Well, I was just in Belgrade uh, last week. I was there for most of the week. And it's, uh, as you say, it's a little a little messy picture. And it's a very interesting election this time round because uh, rather than talking about opposition chaos, we've actually got a degree of coordination in Serbia's opposition, which is um, a novelty compared to the more recent elections we've had where there have been really either atomized opposition groups or no opposition at all because they boycotted in 2020. Um, it's also a case, though, of uh, the elections coming around yet again. We only had parliamentary elections in April last year, so that's just 20 months ago. The, the elections prior to that were 2020, although there was a, a large opposition boycott of those. So, you know, for the voters, it's not so much a case of here we go as uh, here we go again. And in which case is that as, as, <laughs> as a result of this? I mean, why is this that, that the elections have come about? Yeah, it's a good question, really. Why a party, the, the Progressive Party, which is the party of government, and which is the party of President Alexander Vucic, uh, would want to have an election when they actually had a very secure position in Parliament and the President Alexander Vucic as well, uh, very secure in his leadership of the executive branch of government too. Um, the answer is they like to use elections uh, to top up their mandate. They don't like to be looking down the barrel of uh, an election coming up and the conditions not being right to hold it. Um, critics also suggest that it's very handy for the Progressive Party to have elections on such a regular basis because it means they can avoid taking difficult decisions on such things as, oh, I don't know, normalisation of relations with Kosovo. Uh, so you, you might have noticed or you may not have noticed uh, going, in, uh, going on in Brussels this week, you've had uh, EU leaders meeting and putting fresh pressure on Serbia to implement this agreement they made with Kosovo earlier in the year, um, which um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen actually called uh, de facto recognition 
annexation of Kosovo, which was a monumentally unhelpful thing to say if you actually want to get it implemented by Serbia. Uh, but ha- having yourself on election footing and then all the shenanigans that go on after an election in terms of forming a government, um, that's a very good excuse for the Serbian government to say, oh, sorry, we're a bit busy right now, can't quite sort out that normalisation thing, get back to you later. And it's also a very clever tactic insofar as without ever trying to put any policies into practice because you're too busy in an election cycle, no one can actually beat you. It's quite extraordinary. And the, the, the point is as well, in terms of it being very difficult for people to be, beat you, uh, if, to be fair, if I were a Serbian, if I'd been a Serbian voter over the last 11 years and I'd been looking around at election time and looking for a, a credible alternative to the Progressive Party, I'd have been struggling to find one. Because uh, after the 2012 election, uh, the Democratic Party, which had been in power, splintered. And it splintered, really, Emma, uh, because of competing egos in the party. You suddenly had all these mini-democratic parties popping up, you know, depending on whether they were led by Boris Tadic, the former president, Dragan Gilas, the former mayor of Belgrade, or uh, Vuk Jeremic was another one who was the former foreign minister. They all formed their own parties. And suddenly, instead of having a coherent opposition... Uh, you have an atomized one. And of course, that was very easy for the Progressive Party to deal with. They can rock up to an election and say, look, we've got our act together. If nothing else, we're organized. Look at that shower. Well, this is why this is election. This election now is quite interesting, because many, most, but not all of the, the, the pro-European Union opposition have got themselves together under this coalition called Serbia Against Violence. And that may be a more compelling proposition for some voters who really don't want to vote for the progressives in this election. You mentioned Serbia against violence, but at the beginning of our conversation, um, I quoted uh, one opposition uh, figure who said, we're going to cause chaos this weekend. Ah, (laughs) So what, what, what does that mean? Actually, that wasn't the opposition who was saying they were going to cause chaos. It was the Prime Minister Anna Brnovich who was warning that the opposition... Uh, were, were planning to cause chaos by and claiming victory and going to the streets before the results had been announced. The parties in Serbia Against Violence have been asking for the police to be on duty at the polling stations to prevent voter intimidation and to prevent ballot box fraud, uh, which isn't exactly the behaviour of, uh, of a group of parties who are planning to uh, create chaos and, and head for the streets. You don't normally call the police before you cause the chaos. Um, so it's, it's an interesting little pre-election ploy. You could call them mind games if this were a football match. Guy Deloney, thank you as ever for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Find out the latest trade in economy news now with the economist and former joint head of the UK's UK government's economic service, Vicky Price. A very good morning to you, Vicky. Uh, good to have you on Monocle Radio. Um, let's deal with what's happening in America at the moment. The, the Fed has signalled that that there will be not one but several rate cuts next year. Indeed, in fact, three is what the committee seems to think is going to be happening, and the markets have reacted very positively to that. Of course, they immediately have assumed that there will, in fact, be even more 
cuts than what the Fed is suggesting, um, because, of course, inflation is falling quite significantly. And it's interesting how the tone has changed at the Fed, where they're now talking about the fact that they're, they're realised that keeping rates high for, for too long is going to be detrimental, possibly to the economy. And they take account of that in their decisions, of course. Um, so uh, from hawkish talk until quite recently, even though they've still kept the possibility of raising rates if inflation suddenly starts you know, misbehaving, uh, they're now moving to uh, suggesting that the, the path is downward and they will meet their inflation target uh, you know, over the next couple of years so they get back to you know, practically 2%. So that's good news. It, it's good news in, in terms of uh, you know, the cost of borrowing. Um, there is the need, though, that if you can bring inflation back to, back to target, you've got to do it without causing an economic slowdown. Exactly. And of course, we have seen the US do you know, reasonably well uh, in, in the last year by comparison to loads of other countries. So growth is expected to... Uh, to be about two and a half percent in 2023, but they are expecting a bit of a slowdown um, down to about 1.4 percent for 2024. Now, why would this be happening? One of the reasons is that the world economy isn't doing sort of particularly well, but also the impact of those interest rate increases, which have been very sharp, uh, over, you know, happened sort of really quite quickly, is still going to be felt through the economy. And at the same time, they're keeping monetary tightening going in the sense of still selling quite a lot of government bonds that the central bank has been acquiring in the past. So tightening is still there. So growth is going to be that great. And we've seen some signs, in fact, of, of an easing taking place over the last few months. So I think they are worried about that. Now, of course, the situation could end up being quite dif different uh, because they're encouraging all sorts of investment to happen in the US with uh, the um, Inflation Reduction Act. And what we're also seeing, of course, uh, is that uh, there are huge subsidies to be given big, big fiscal impetus in the economy, then we may actually get a, do a better figure than that, which, of course, will mean that the Fed will still keep watching and making sure that things don't get out of hand. How much will this um, be be spread to the rest of the world? Uh, the, one, one of the reasons why um, the causes of inflation seem different from last time, which is what what has caused this this you know this huge problem in the last year, is that um, in the past inflation is caused by an absolute overload of demand and pushes pushes things up. But the Americans are saying that actually um, supply restrictions have been the problem with inflation this time round. And as workers are going back to work, supply chains are settling down. Inflation can comfortably come down. Is that an American situation or is this happening around the world? It's happening around the world. There are still staff shortages um, in loads of places. We've seen that here in the UK and there are some places also in Europe that they're reported, but a bit less. Uh, so there is an issue of how have people come back after the pandemic, quite a lot of people just not returning to the labour market. And of course, things are shifting in terms of where the skills are that are, that are needed and, and people need to be trained and have the experience to be able to, to do these new jobs, if you like. So so, so there, there is that issue. There is also, of course, uh, the need to move into more green production and that requires a lot of investment and, and again, retraining people so that there is all that that's happening. But it's absolutely true that supply chains more generally have eased very significantly and there is a lot of inf deflation being exported by uh, places like China where uh, inflation is 
is, you know, or prices are falling in uh, for a number of sectors in, in China. And that is reflected then in what one is paying for the goods that one is buying. So that's interesting. Plus, of course, oil prices, which we've been expecting to be very high right now with the cuts that OPEC has been announcing, in fact, are, are moving in the opposite direction. So there is quite a lot of sort of uh, positive stuff coming through. But the staff issue is one which even in the US right now is grappling with. Uh, let's have a look at, uh, let's head to Wall Street into Citigroup. It's telling, uh, you're talking about people returning to the workforce. Uh, Citigroup is actively encouraging some people to leave. Yes, well, Citigroup uh, believes that it's not doing as well as some as its main competitors, and it's been restructuring. It announced a restructuring plan a few months ago, which means also in reducing the number of employees quite significantly, layering, uh, um, looking at the layers of management and reducing those as well, and exiting quite a lot of places, or from places where it's not making enough money. Uh, and in one of them, they mention is Argentina, with all the changes going on right now, where they're likely to lose quite a lot of. Of money themselves, it will, it will well. They're not necessarily going to lose overall, but it will mean some hit in their in their revenues. So there are areas where they are rethinking, uh, and they are offering employees, uh, you know, part of their bonus for this year if they prepared to exit early, and they also keeping some of their uh, their options, the share options that they have, so they can actually exercise them. So so the deferred stock options that had been promised to people, they can keep them as they go. Um, so there's an inducement to to leave and, and go elsewhere with, with a, a reasonable package. So this is part of what they're trying to do. I think a lot of what they've been talking about, reducing costs and an extra, um, you know, one billion they're setting aside for that includes that uh, type of approach towards their employees, reducing basically uh, their, their the numbers that they've got and, and rethinking. And they, apparently they intend to get to this reorganisation by the first quarter of 2024. I'd be interested to see a new city group emerging, if you like. Um, very briefly, Vicky, is this an, an unusual practice? Not necessarily. Um, there are all sorts of inducements uh, for this, but uh, in terms of being expressed so so clearly, I think that is indeed uh, quite unusual. I think quite a lot of deals are being done as people leave particular um, uh, financial institutions, which are not necessarily disclosed. But the fact that they are doing it and are doing it openly is, I think, quite new. Vicky Price, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally, the Hong Kong-based Langham Hospitality Group is set to have its best performance year in history across its 32 hotels on four continents. Or for 2024, the group is planning to expand with 12 more hotels and recently appointed a CEO of the group, Bob Van Den Oord, spoke to Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco at the Langham in London. They began by talking about what kind of year 2023 has been. Looking at our numbers... Um, it's going to be a record year for us. Um, we're very encouraged with the trends that we're seeing. Our U.S. hotels are doing particularly well uh, with record um, revenues, and indeed here in London. Um, China and Hong Kong will take a little bit more time to get back at 2018 levels, which is before COVID and before the Hong Kong protests. Um, and indeed, Australia is still in this near recession with high inflation, and I think people have less disposable income there and we're hurting a little bit in Australia but overall as a group um, we're seeing that more people are traveling we're seeing that corporate particularly regional travel is very much back corporate events are back 
And then the leisure end of the market, particularly out of the United States, is also back. So uh, we're very happy where we are and to indeed posting uh, a record year after COVID is great to be seeing that. What about next year? Are there plans for new openings that are going to keep what you have and improve it? How do you see 2024 at the moment? Yeah, so right now we have 32 hotels around the world and over four continents. Um, and we have 12 hotels in the pipeline to be opening over the next uh, couple of years. We've got a beautiful hotel coming up in Venice and it sits right in Murano Island. Um, on the lagoon um, and it used to be an old glass factory which we are taking down. Uh, it's a listed building, we're taking it down, storing it and then once we're done we rebuild it and that whole hotel overlooks the lagoon but also has a beautiful courtyard and with this amazing swimming pool and uh, I think that hotel is going to do really well. Uh, it's a great location and the design is by Matteo Toon and we've got Richmond involved and Martin Brzezinski. So I think it's going to be a really um, great combination of architects and designers uh, to build a great Langham for us. We also have other hotels coming up uh, in San Francisco. We're doing something in Roppongi Hills. Uh, Kengo Kuma is doing the architecture for us there. We have Seattle in the US um, that we hope to open in the next couple of years. We have Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. That's a really interesting project. It's part of the UNESCO um, heritage project where the Raya Gate um, is uh, an area in Riyadh um, where we'll be opening our hotel in the new part of that, what they call right on the Champs-Élysées um, of Riyadh next to the new National Opera House. So I think that's going to be a spectacular opening. And then we've got many other hotels in, in China um, that we're opening as well. And I just want to go by very quickly to Hong Kong. How are you seeing Hong Kong as well? Because I know there's been challenges, but there are a lot of glimpses of optimism now for next year, right? Especially when it comes to hospitality, tourism, retail. Yeah, so last time I was in Hong Kong was during COVID. Mm. Um, and it was a very difficult place to live. And having come back there now, and I've been there for three months now uh, for my new role, I've got to tell you, Fernando, it's a very relaxed kind of like atmosphere. People have really uh, moved on uh, from everything that's happened in the past um, and are making the most of it. And I'm actually having a really good sense of Hong Kong right now. The government is coming up with lots of great new initiatives. They've introduced new night markets um, that are popping up all over Hong Kong. Um, and indeed, there's some great festivals. We had the Wine and Dine Festival recently. We had the um, uh, Clock and Flap Music Festival. Um, and indeed, we had the Gay Games as well in the last couple of weeks. And all of these events were very well attended uh, and people had a really good time. And, if I look at our numbers in our hotels, we're also seeing an upward trend there. We're not quite yet at 2018 levels, you know, pre-COVID and pre the protests that we had, but I'm confident that next year we can get much closer to those numbers. And of course, it helps that the border with China is, is open and we're having lots of uh, mainland Chinese coming to Hong Kong uh, for their weekend breaks and indeed their, their holidays. It is still a very good place to come uh, for shopping and good food and just to relax for the weekends. 
And that was Bob Van Den Oort there in conversation with Monocle's Fernanda Augusta Pacheco. Listen out for a longer version of that on the Monocle Weekly. Well, that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Carlotta Ribello and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 